Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Can I please have your attention? Welcome to The Remnant. I am not Jonah Goldberg, as you may already be able to tell. This is Sarah Isger. I am the host of the Dispatch podcast, which maybe you've heard of, or Advisory Opinions, that I co-host with David French. Jonah has left, and he must have run out of all the better options. So here I am. It's my first time hosting, so I decided to invite a buddy that I see all the time. He's kind of my neighbor. Um, Our children are betrothed. We'll get to that later. But it's Jonathan Swan from Axios. Thanks for coming, Jonathan. Thanks for having me. Jonathan, just in case a bunch of Remnant listeners don't know a lot about you, uh, you're Australian, and you came here and you married an American journalist, and that's pretty much what makes you famous. There's an Emmy Award in there and some other stuff. Wait, you're Um, saying the the fact I married Betsy is the bit that makes me famous? That's what makes you famous, yeah. That's why you're here. That's (laughs) interesting. I mean... I don't think that's true, but it, like, I'm sure she'd like that, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> I knew Betsy first. You did. You did know Betsy first. That's true. Okay. How do you get from Australia to here? Give us, like give us your story. It's like hours. You fly through LA or Dallas. Um, no, look, I came, I, I, uh, I was sort of born into journalism in some ways, like my family, my, my dad is a journalist in Australia. Uh, my uncle and aunt are crime reporters. Um, I grew up kind of around news. I grew up like, you know, as I remember going as a kid into my dad's, he's a radio broadcaster into his studio. My first paid job was when I was 15 or 16 at a tabloid newspaper called the Sun Herald. It was a Sunday newspaper and I was a copy boy, which is effectively a servant for um, the journalists. You just do it, run errands for them, whatever you want. And I also, the other job I had was called police rounds, which um, I think it's probably illegal. Uh, and, and I'm confident it does. I don't know, maybe it does exist in some newsrooms, but basically what it used to be anyway, was you'd sit up in this room and you had like eight different scanners that were hacking into police radios from all different parts of Sydney. And you were just listening to cops talk to each other on their radios. And the idea was you were basically an early warning kind of, you know, if there was a murder or something, you could call down to the news desk and say, listen, they're heading to this part of town. There's a murder, there's a a holdup, whatever. So that was my introduction, I guess, to journalism. Um, And, you know, I, I, I did what, Again, all this is kind of old-fashioned, a sort of an apprenticeship, really, uh, what's, what's called a, a tra- cadet journalist, uh, uh, where you 
you know, you, you go through every part of the newsroom. You have to cover everything from like local stuff to music and food to crime. You know, I did, you know, covered uh, murders and cops and all sorts of things like that. And then I moved to Canberra and covered federal politics. And that's when I really discovered what I loved covering, which was how decisions are made, how government works, and really like the behind the scenes that the public doesn't get to see of of how some of these big uh, actions are hashed out um, with all sorts of constituent pressures and machinations. Um, and, and in some cases, um, it, there's a personal dimension to it as well. In fact, in many cases. And then you know, I was always interested in America. I studied American history. Um, and in 2014, I, I got a fellowship that was supposed to be just a one-year stint over in America, come back. The idea was through this organization called the American Australian Association. Um, the idea was, you know, you come back and you are more informed about how Congress works in America and whatever. Uh, but I just never left and um, uh, ended up getting a job um, at the Hill newspaper and covering the 2016 election. And the rest, the is, rest is history. history. Yeah, exactly. So I was sitting in a makeup room one time and this wonderful woman was doing my makeup and, you know, you sort of chit chat with your makeup artist. And I noticed that she had an Australian accent. And I really pride myself on knowing the difference between Australian and New Zealand accents, which I guess is something that y'all care deeply about. So I've tried to care deeply about it. Maybe just the New Zealanders care about it. I don't, and like, versus the Australians. But regardless, I was like, oh, you're from Australia. That's great. She was like, oh yeah, you like Australia? And I was like, yeah, yeah, I do. She goes, what's the capital of my country? So good. <laughs> um, I failed that quiz. I could not possibly come up with it. And most people mispronounce it. So will you do a little Australia lesson here? Uh, I, what are the boundaries of this Australia lesson? Like, <laughs> no, just tell I mean, us, tell us like, the you know, Wikipedia of your entry, slash like, <laughs> you know, it's funny. I just want you to I've read the Wikipedia friend, entry. That's why this, I invited you. I've got this friend um, who was a longtime Capitol Hill staffer, and he describes very amusingly this trip that he took uh, with, uh, it was a CODEL with um, members of Congress to Australia. And they met with Australian politicians and whatever. And the questions from the American congressional delegation were just cringeworthy. Um, so one of them said, are you a happy people? And, <laughs> and, and like the Australian minister, I think it was the foreign minister, was just like perplexed. And then one of the next questions was, how many of you are there? You know, questions that can be easily obtained on Google. Um, so in that spirit, um, we are, look, my supreme sovereign is King Charles III. Um, he is, uh, the man I ultimately answer to. Because you're not an American citizen. No, I'm not. Um, and actually I remember back in 2017, I wrote a story that Bannon didn't like Steve Bannon. And he asked me what my visa status was. Um, and I think he was joking, but like, can't be certain. Um, <laughs> but no, I'm not. I have a green card. Uh, so I'm, and I've had, um, uh, you know, I've married an American, so I, I actually want to be an American citizen. But um, Australia, I don't know, what, what, what do you want out of Australia? Like, what do you want? What do you want from me? Pronounce the capital of your country. Canberra. Even though it's not spelled that way? No, it's Canberra. 
have you uh, been snorkeling in the Great Barrier Reef? Yes. Mm -hmm. But it was a very cloudy day and I didn't see much. So Interesting. Have you held a koala? Yes. What is your favorite Australian animal? I mean, it's a cliche, but I'm just going to be honest with you because you asked me a question. It's the kangaroo. It's a very strong animal. Um, And uh, in fact, there is a rich history in Australia of Australian men fighting with kangaroos, like fist fist fighting. They're a terribly they like strong good fist fighters. Oh, absolutely! Yeah. No, they're a terribly strong animal. Can be quite vicious. Have you eaten a kangaroo? Yeah, of course, I've eaten kangaroo many times. It's, it's, a, it's a healthy, lean meat, which can be quite tasty if marinated in the right um, type of marinade. I wouldn't call it a staple, but a small part of my my diet. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So you move over to the United States. Mm-hmm. Is it a little, and if this is an insulting question, I would say forgive me, but like we have a relationship where it's like, it's inherent. Forgiveness is inherent. Is it like Hollywood where like you become like a real celebrity in your country, but like it doesn't count unless you're a celebrity in the United States. So you move to the United States to like make it big. <laughs> uh, that wasn't, that, that certainly wasn't anything that I, that occurred to me. I suppose in a certain way, that's probably true. Uh, if you okay. just look at the way Australians kind of conquered Hollywood and, you know, the most famous Australians, Russell Crowe and Nicole Kidman, like that. Right. But asterisk, there is a tall poppy syndrome, as it's called in Australia, where it's like, you know, in America, Americans like to um, build up and celebrate wealth and success and, and whatever in Australia. Um, you know, there's this sort of, national sport in kind of knocking them down it's sort of it's a it's a little bit of a uk kind of uh you see it in the uk tabloid sort of tradition but it's it's sort of on steroids in australia so i'm not in that league to be clear like there's no i'm not in like gossip magazines or anything back home so like i'm not like that famous well so you you cover the 2016 election I don't think this is really opinion or exaggeration to say you become the most well-sourced reporter about the Trump administration. And if not the, we should at least, you know, say one off the very tip top. Um, you win an Emmy for your interview with Donald Trump. Maybe we'll go back and talk about some of that. But I am curious, do you recognize in the grocery store for like that meme of you making the face at the... There was a period, you know, it's funny. It really is a, the 15 minute analogy is kind of a pretty good one where like there was a period where after that interview with Trump where I experienced for probably six months what true fame was. And it's it's weird. Like, I don't know, so can you swear on the poker? It's so weird. It's so weird. Like people were like yelling at me from cars, stopping me on corners. I couldn't walk like, now granted, this is Washington DC where everyone's a weirdo who's into this stuff. I'm being facetious, obviously. Um, airports, all that kind of stuff. That's kind of faded now. Like maybe cause like I kind of look a bit more decrepit and I, you know, it's sort of, I've aged a bit and maybe whatever, but also just cause like who cares? People move on very quickly. And, um, you know, uh, it was just a funny period of time. People were like coming up to me just constantly. Um, and just sort of accosting me like they knew me or something. It was, it was very, very weird. Uh, but that doesn't happen. I think I told you this, but so for listeners, um, 
his wife, Betsy Woodruff Swan and I, and two other moms, we all had our babies at like peak COVID summer of 2020. And we sort of had this mom pod because you couldn't really see anyone. And so we had this text chain and we would have, you know, pod meetings where everyone had sort of, you know, tested or we weren't sick or whatever. And I remember that, um, one of the moms in the mom pod, frankly, everyone's favorite mom, um, she didn't know who Tucker Carlson was. (laughs) <laughs> but she knew who you were based on that meme that had gone around the internet. And that was like a weird moment where I was like, oh, that's strange. Okay. So, but here's the thing about Jonathan that I think it's impossible to like draw out in an interview in some respects, which is your relentlessness and obsession. Like you have an obsessive quality about work. And you had a second baby a couple weeks ago, Sam. Uh, and he's incredible and amazing and healthy and happy and mom's good. And you've been on paternity leave of a sort. It's like a Jonathan paternity leave though. And I'm curious, like, let's get to some substance here. What are the stories that you've missed in your uh, two weeks of paternity painful. leave? I'm not getting it. That's like, that's, that's just, I can't even psychologically. Look, the only way I could do, I, I've taken two weeks. I'm, I'm now, it's, it's over. Yeah, I don't do well off work. Um, I just, I, I find it sort of, look, I love what I do. I, it's not, it's not that complicated. Like I just, I enjoy what I do. And, and, and if kind of left to my own devices, I would probably just naturally kind of like, if I see something that I'm curious about, I want to know what, how, like what's actually going on. I want to pick up the phone and make a bunch of calls. I don't want to like just read what someone else is reported or told me about it I want to figure out if if there's more to it or or whatever so like what I find difficult when I do take bits of time off is if I'll read stories that are about stuff that are going on I just like I just want to jump in and find out what what's actually going on or maybe there's more to it or maybe I read something and I feel like oh that's a little off I just want to make a few calls and once you go down that rabbit hole you're no longer on paternity leave uh but I am no longer on paternity leave, so. What are you curious about right now? Innumerable things, but um, <laughs> Mr. Herschel Walker has been a great source of curiosity to me. That's why I asked the question. I thought for sure yeah. you were going to take the bait and be like, I was mad that I missed out on the Herschel Walker story. I just find Herschel Walker, like, I find him in, look, in some ways, I don't, I've seen people sort of wring their hands and say, if he gets elected, you know, th- this is the end of, uh it'll now be clear that uh, evangelical voters are frauds and hypocrites and, and whatever. It's like, I, I, I actually don't see it that way at all. Um, to be clear, anyone who spent the 1990s writing books about, you know, the need to restore morality in public life in America, uh, uh, Mr. Bennett, um, or, or um, you know, uh, saying lamenting how Bill Clinton had sullied uh, the office of the presidency and, um, and that we need to have people of the highest moral character. Yeah. Those people are hypocrites to be clear. Okay. However, there's also another side to it, which is if you were, um, an evangelical voter who cares about abortion and that's your key issue, and you voted for a notorious womanizer who at a minimum paid off a porn star at a maximum has been accused of sexual assault by I think more than a dozen women um, or sexual harassment or some form of the above different uh, degrees and was pro-abortion for most of his adult life 
And then he comes into office and delivers for you at a level that George W. Bush didn't even come close to delivering on, like actually gives you what you want. Ultimately, you then have gone through that experience and you say to yourself, do I go to the polls and vote for somebody who has innumerable seemingly children with different women, hasn't seemingly raised any of them, seems to have paid for at least one abortion, despite being claiming to be pro-life. But you know with pretty good certainty he's going to vote the Republican line and is going to vote your interests on, on, on social conservatives. Or somebody, Raphael Warnock, who, who you know may have hired levels of competence and all sorts of other things, but will, with equal level of certainty, vote against your interests on those issues. I actually think it's quite irrational. You can see how it is quite a rational choice for social conservatives to to take that position because they've just gone through this with Donald Trump. They've just gone through this. They've seen what this means. And the the, the moral character of the individual has been decoupled from uh, the voting process, I think. And I think what we realized in the 90s, I wasn't here, but I read a lot about the period, is that um, the, the elites cared a lot more about the sanctity of the office than the public did. And I, there was great frustration uh, among the, the panel shows um, on the set of Meet the Press and all the opinion makers in Washington. There was great frustration that the citizenry the 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 debauched citizenry didn't seem to be equally outraged as David Broder was at, at um the or George Will was at the horrific uh, sins of Bill Clinton um and so I'm not trying to make some great uh, equivalence here but what I'm saying is um I think people some people are too quick to assume that a sort of cartoonish image of these voters when actually they're used to making very cold blooded political assessments. And, you know, I've talked to lots of voters um, who, uh, evangelical Christians, who find Donald Trump to be morally abhorrent, but yet faced with a binary choice, voted for him. Let's talk about Trump world a little, because Herschel Walker was a Trump pick that was not opposed and in the end supported by the rest of the Republican establishment, which makes that one a little unique. But Herschel Walker in Georgia, Oz in Pennsylvania, J.D. Vance in Ohio, Blake Masters in Arizona. What do you hear from Trump world about what happens if some of those candidates lose, if all of those candidates lose, if all of those candidates win? How how are they going to view this? Are they going to are they already sort of in their various spin modes on it? Um, because to, something I've been thinking for a long time is Trump and his team were really able to tout a lot of primary wins, mm. very few primary losses, all things considered. And they took some big ones, right? Like they right. weren't just picking the easy ones. Like I think you could argue that they did in 2020 or even 2018, but winning the primary is not actually meaningful. Right for taking over a political party. You have to have people in office, and that right. means winning the general election. So you're seeing a couple of things happen. One is Trump, it, it is almost impossible to get him to spend any of his own money on anyone other than himself. And the fact that he is spending, who knows how much it'll be, it may be, end up being 
fairly small amount of money. But the fact that he is now through this new uh, pack that they've set up going to be spending and and is spending money on some of these candidates shows um, that he really does care, that he does see a connection between uh, his own image and political strength and the outcomes of some of these races. Um, I think it it varies depending on the race. So um, Trump, I think everyone's worried about Blake Masters in Arizona, everyone in in both the establishment and, I mean, the GOP establishment has sort of cut him loose to a large extent and Trump is sort of trying to now goad McConnell, you know, why isn't he spending on Blake Masters, et cetera, et cetera. But like the general view is that Blake Masters probably loses um, in Arizona. They're feeling pretty good about Nevada, but that was a sort of unity pick, like McConnell was behind Laxalt as well. Um, Oz, Trump sort of had a little bit of bias remorse after that one. Um, but he, again, they're feeling fairly good about him now. He's sort of regained and it looks like a bit of a jump ball there. They're feeling pretty good about J.D. Vance in Ohio, uh, just the environment. That one in particular, though, that's an R plus seven, R yeah. plus nine mm-hmm. state. Like, you better be, f- like, having a candidate sure. who should win by a lot. And sure. he may win by quite a bit, but he's underperforming at minimum for for what the state is. Sure, but... but- I mean, what what's Trump going to do if if JD win JD Vance wins by you know two points? This is the greatest victory anyone's ever seen, and no one thought he could do it. <laughs> uh, uh, he's the great, you know, whatever. Um, uh, and and if he loses multiple of these races, of course he's just going to blame other people like Mitch McConnell and whatever, even if it has no connection to reality. Um, you know, like if if Blake Masters loses, Trump will blame McConnell for not spending enough money, you know, for for McConnell's super PAC not spending any money there. Like he definitely does care about these races and sees his image as somehow connected to them, but that's like everyone knows how he's going to react. Like his team's not like they don't prepare like talking points. They all know that if he wins, he's going to say it's the greatest thing that's ever happened. If he loses any of these races, he's going to blame other people and then move on. Um, so like, that's when the does thing. he announce? Does he announce? Does this affect his announcement? I don't know that. That's an interesting question. The announcement thing, like. I was convinced based on conversations I was having with people around him, I was convinced in the spring that he was probably going to announce um, in the summer. I was very, felt very confident that he was going to announce before the midterms and then he didn't, um, which was of great relief to Kevin McCarthy and Mitch McConnell. And America, just Americans. <laughs> like even if you want Donald Trump to be president, you don't, we don't need this right now. Like two years will be enough. Thank you. <laughs> so, um, so, like, it doesn't seem like he's going to announce before the midterms now. Um, although, if he did, would it stun me? No. Um, I'm told he does see this as um, bolstering his legal defense, uh, being a current presidential candidate. And I think, objectively, he's correct. Um, that probably does give Ooh, him... say more about that. You think that... Don't you think, don't you think him being a, an announced, declared presidential candidate... Um, helps him in certain ways at some of these investigations he's facing. Like, don't, don't you think it does add a certain level of pressure on the people who are making these considerations, these high stakes considerations? Maybe not. Maybe they're pure and completely operating in this, you know, pristine environment where this doesn't even enter it. And Merrick Garland is this sort of monk-like figure who, 
you know, is, is you know, cannot be corrupted uh, by any such considerations. But, you know, I tend to think it might help him a little bit. But if he thinks that it will either prevent indictment or undermine indictment, why not have announced already? Well, I think he, I've, like, I don't know this for a fact, but uh, I was told by one of his advisors that he, there was a certain amount of regret about not having done it before um, the Mar-a-Lago raid. Um, and there were certain people um, in his orbit who wanted him to declare straight after that. Uh, but I think he probably, again, I don't know this uh, firsthand, but um, uh, he obviously decided that that was not, like reacting in that way was not helpful to him. But There was a fascinating piece in The Atlantic that popped last night, this morning, uh, Franklin Four, who says that he is now convinced after interviews with Merrick Garland, all his aides, yada, 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 that Merrick Garland is going to indict Donald Trump. I haven't read the piece. Did Franklin interview Garland? Yes. Oh, interesting. But now, of course, Garland doesn't say that at all. He says the same thing he's always been saying, which is nobody's above the law. Right. And it's so hard for a piece like that because, right, we're not there in the interviews. Right. But I worked at the Department of Justice. I've actually worked at the department three different times. And I think it's very easy for someone who does not sort of cover DOJ day to day to misunderstand the like soldier mentality as meaning you're definitely going to indict someone. When in fact, it's more like you never not indict someone, if that makes sense. Like it's always on the table. Oh, I see. It's always on the table. You never are like, oh, for these prudential reasons, we're absolutely ruling out this possibility. Like DOJ is not like state. It's not like the White House. People aren't sort of musing. It's a very, very regimented, mentally regimented place because it's a bunch of lawyers. Does he explain in the piece why he came to that view? Or was it just sort of like he felt it in his waters? It's a, it, it, I mean, I have to say I walked away with like his divining rod told mm. him that Garland's going to indict. However, this one part I found interesting. Uh, the excruciating conundrum that Garland faces is also a liberating one. He can't win politically. He will either antagonize the right or disappoint the left. Whatever he decides, he will become deeply unpopular. He will unavoidably damage the reputation of the institution he loves so dearly with a significant portion of the populace. Faced with so unpalatable a choice, he doesn't really have one. That is a smart observation Mm. that the Garland folks no doubt have factored in. And I say that because, yep, live through that one. And it is liberating if none of the choices are good ones in terms of your own personal popularity or the institution, then you can do just what you think is right. But I think he underestimates Garland as a thoughtful long-term thinker as well. And if you open the box of indicting a former president for obstruction, which I think is unique, not, for instance, for taking classified documents. Seditious conspiracy. Or, yeah, or, yeah, not for January right. 6th stuff, but for obstruction? Oof. I just, I don't see a recommendation from career prosecutors to do it. Mm. And I don't see Garland, who spent, you know, most of his career as a judge, um, doing that as well. But again, I thought that paragraph was smart and an insightful thought from the DOJ side. But, you know, we have two pretty... <laughs> Do you ever watch the show Billions? Only the first few episodes, but um, that's like yeah, on my list of things I must return to. Uh, yeah. I don't know. 
my husband, I mean, you know, Scott, yeah. Scott got into it for a little while and it drove me crazy because it was so unrealistic. Yeah, this idea that a, it, really. a prosecutor with all of these conflicts would keep going after this guy who his wife, like her boss slash guy she kind of wants to sleep right. with. Like, no, but in some ways it's kind of that asymmetry of motives and thinking and all of that is kind of close here. You have a Trump world that is just considering totally different things, is driven by totally different incentives and motivations than the DOJ folks. So I'm curious, like, how you see Trump world viewing the Department of Justice. Did they think privately that these guys are sort of doing their job going through the motions? Or are they like, nope, these are enemy number one, politically motivated? Again, it really depends who you talk to. And and I don't want to get too specific because it'll sort of outsources. But um, suffice to say, there are people in Trump's orbit, advisors who who think that he had every opportunity to give everything back and that this is a legitimate uh, inquiry. Potentially still, by the way, right? We have stories that he still has documents? Allegedly, yeah. So, um, and then there are some, for sure, for sure, who are true, believe, truly believe that the Justice Department is a sort of, you know, Biden's kind of uh, secret police sicked onto Trump for um, the purposes of um, foreclosing his challenge in the 2024 election. For sure, there are people in Trump's orbit who believe that. Big picture philosophy, well, starting out, where do you think the Republican Party is going to be in 10 years or the Democratic Party? Like how, in some of the shifts we're seeing, where, what do you think we'll look back on and say like, oh, this wasn't really even just Trump or the Herschel Walker race. There were bigger shifts going on and, and bigger tectonic plates moving underneath the surface that we were having trouble seeing at the time. Well, I think, again, like unless the trajectory changes, the Republican Party is becoming more of a working class party. Um, they've, they've not completely lost, but to a large extent lost college-educated voters. Um, they're lost a lot of suburban women. And the party, certainly in the House, and certainly where the energy is headed, uh, is decoupling itself from many of its old uh, coalition allies, namely corporate America, uh, large sections of the top level of corporate America. That can be obscured. That reality can be obscured if you spend too much time kind of paying attention to the Senate because, of course, Mitch McConnell, Republican leadership in the Senate, and still the vast majority of Republican senators are still basically old-line Reaganite Republicans who are pretty friendly with the business community in favor of free, fairly free trade, internationalist in outlook, you know, favor supporting Ukraine against Russia, um, willing, even if they're not willing to say it out loud, to at least entertain pro-business immigration reforms. But just look at the replacements. Look at the Republicans who retired in the Senate and look at who replaced them. Rob Portman is replaced by J.D. Vance. Uh, that's a pretty good example. Richard Burr replaced by Ted Budd. These are not old-line Republicans. These are people with more of a populist bent. The House is already there. I mean, Kevin McCarthy, it's not a secret. I mean, he's told me this on the record. If he's the Speaker of the House next year, he will not take a meeting with the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. He won't. He has said this on the record. And the view of a lot of Republican House members 
it's not only that they won't, here's their view. And this is, again, I'm just reflecting what I hear when I talk to them frequently. Their view is to like corporate America writ large, large portions of the top end of corporate America is we protected you guys for a long time. We tried to cut your taxes. We tried to lighten your regulations. We tried to work against trial lawyers who were, who were trying to you know, bring class action suits against you. And you turn around and on every issue of cultural salience, you sided with Democrats. Um, you did it on voting rights. You did it on the environment. Um, after January 6th, you basically boycotted the party, pulled corporate PAC money. And you know what? F you. We are not going to protect you anymore. And, and in fact, we're going to look for opportunities to harm you. And we watched what Ron DeSantis did in Florida with Disney taking on the most powerful company in that state and going after them uh, because they opposed him on policy. And they saw that and they saw how much it enlivened the base. And they also are responding to, again, just the fact that their coalition is changing. If your coalition is more working class, non-college educated voters, you don't feel as beholden. You know, there are politicians now on the right, like Ted Cruz, who out of, now it must be said, opportunism, because it's not like corporate PACs were lining up to donate to him, but has said, I won't take corporate PAC money. It's you know, sort of, you can't fire me, I quit. The same with Josh Hawley, but like they know they can rely on low dollar donations and, and, and rake them in. And so the, the party is changing in that way. And, and I don't see any reason why to think that it would reverse. The, the challenge the Democratic Party has is um, something that Bernie Sanders articulated to me when I interviewed him last year. He's very worried that the Democratic Party will become the party of the college educated. And he sees that as fairly unsustainable um, because at some point there is some threshold at which if you uh, if your constituents become wealthier uh, individuals, their personal interests will uh, collide with your um, progressive policies. Uh, maybe that threshold is fairly high and higher than we think, but it exists. So those are sort of things that I'm watching in the two parties uh, uh, at the moment. Did you read the book, The Emerging Democratic Majority? Its 20th anniversary is this year. This is the book that it's been a little mischaracterized. Demography is destiny kind of thing. Yeah, it's, it's demographics or destiny, which is right. a little simplistic of what it was a whole book, right? They didn't just say right. um, that Democrats will forever have an enduring majority. They said you have to keep that white working class vote, something that in fact Democrats haven't done. And I'm curious what you would try tribute some of that shift to? Well, what, what's happening is, well, we should start by saying that um, to a certain extent, um, presidential elections, uh, well, not to a certain extent, <laughs> to a fairly large extent, presidential elections are becoming increasingly untethered from the national popular vote. The, the fact that Trump came as close as he did to winning in 2020 even though he was was at seven million votes behind Biden nationally, eight million, something like that, but he was, you know, only in the tens of thousands away from flipping across several several states. There's a factor there. I mean, the, the, the fact that the way the system works right now, 
is becoming like we are getting further and further away. Something you can call structural gerrymandering, right? The idea that California, New York, and Illinois have 20% of the U.S. population roughly, but 6% of the Senate vote. A little bit more of the Electoral College vote because that's going to include the House stuff. Well, another way of looking at it is I I, I could be getting it slightly wrong, but it's close enough. Uh, When there's a 50-50 Senate, the 50 Democratic Senators represent something like 40 million more Americans than the Republicans do, which to um, an Australian's ear would seem really kind of absurd, um, like kind of shocking. Um, But Americans are just used to it. It's the system. Well, but we have the House that's by population, and we have the presidency, which is then the marriage of the two. The idea is that everything wasn't supposed to be popular. No, no, the I, Senate I, was I'm supposed fully, to be a little bit. I'm fully aware of the the. I'm fully aware of the, the way the system works. But what is fairly, <laughs> I'm not sure whether there was a case of like the delta that we now see between the national popular vote, like like to have someone, let's say Biden um, lost the election. Like, has there been a case with that scale of delta of popular votes? Like, he almost lost the election. No. Like, like we're, it's getting, the gap is getting larger and larger. And the fact that, I think it's only George W. Bush in 04, the only Republican to win the national popular vote in the last 30 years or something. Like, that's, that's fairly new as far as I'm aware. So anyway, but, so, but, but what's happening, um, what was your question again? Went off on this weird tangent. Well, sort of how the demographics is destiny well, didn't no, so come to fruition. Learned, I mean, 20 years right. later, it looks like such a huge mistake. It's not completely bogus because Democrats are still winning um, majorities uh, of Hispanic voters, even though I hate saying Hispanic voters because, like, the Latino vote, quote-unquote, is so such an absurd term that it's, like, almost useless because of the really strong variations um, between, uh, <laughs> are you talking about Cubans in Florida or Venezuelans or whatever? Anyway, but that being said, what we're seeing now is less uh, racial polarization and more polarization based on quote unquote class or education. And so what you're seeing when there's a group I interviewed, I spent a lot of time with them after the 2020 election. Um, and I forget the name of the group, but basically they're the, the democratic outside group that spent more money and time and energy than anyone else trying to figure out what happened with Hispanic voters in 2020. And one of the things they kind of determined was that Hispanic working class voters, non-college educated voters are just behaving and voting more like white working class voters. And to a much lesser extent, the same phenomenon is happening with African-American non-college educated voters, particularly men, not so much women. So that is fairly new. And um, if that trend continues, it's of great alarm to Democrats because it blows up that theory that you just mentioned. I haven't read the book, but uh, I'm very familiar with that line of thinking. It was, you know, that then became the Obama coalition. and Yeah, the ascendancy of Obama in 2008 looked like right. the fulfillment of the demographics' as destiny manifesto. And that's what Republicans thought. I remember like, 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 yes, there was just the poll that again, I wasn't here, but I read about it, and I've talked to people in, in who who were there at the time in in retrospect, and like people like Eric Cantor, there was a just a depression at that time after that election that like you know people like especially twenty twelve. This gives rise oh, to the yeah. RNC autopsy oh, yeah. where you have to do you oh, have to yeah. change your immigration policies one hundred and eighty degrees because otherwise you are never winning another race again. There is such a strong amnesia in American 
political kind of analysis. Like, like again, like I haven't been here that long, but like I remember when Lindsey Graham was like screaming from the <laughs> rooftops that like, w- you know, we are going to be wiped out of existence unless we welcome immigrants and, uh, you know, because, whatever. And, and um, this is just not that long ago <laughs> that this was the governing theory of the party. It was really like so much so that Rubio, after being elected in a Tea Party wave, um, put his you know face and name and image on immigration reform. Just unimaginable in in today's GOP. So I have a theory for you, and it goes to the fact that campaigns are staffed by college graduates, by and large but mostly by, like the vast majority are college graduates. And as college campuses have shifted far more so than when I was in college and certainly more so than, you know, you go back to like the seventies or something, they were sort of liberal in a quirky way. Now they are far more partisanly liberal. I think they fall, they, they map onto the progressive movement much more so than liberals on campus did Back in the day, they sort of saw themselves as sort of independent from the political thing. Um, The new study out from Center for the Study of Partisanship and Ideology, 30% of students and nearly the same share of academic staff in social sciences and humanities fields identify as the furthest left on a seven-point scale. Uh, Another stat, liberal arts colleges have no conservatives very low viewpoint diversity, but have high sexual diversity at nearly 40% identifying as uh, LGBT. And you end up with this weird thing going on where in terms of race, um, 36% of minorities in the country identify as conservatives, but only 13% of minority students in colleges. and you see this in religion, right? They're, you're far more likely to have non-religious students at these colleges. So they're becoming less and less representative of what America looks like and what that used to mean. So the staffers on these campaigns were further to the left of their median voter. For Republicans, that meant they were more moderate, but they had already sort of learned that second language because presumably in college, they had been sort of doing extracurricular study of reading right-wing thinkers, et cetera. But even so, that's how you end up with sort of the Paul Ryan, Eric Cantor. I mean, originally Kevin McCarthy was part of that crew. Uh, uh, Economic conservatives, social liberals. And on the Democratic side, you have them pulling the party out to their base. So the Republican Party, it was pulling them more moderate. The Democratic Party is pulling them out. As that got more extreme and you had sort of that Donald Trump revolution in 2016, frankly, those Republican staffers are gone. The like more moderate ones are, are being shouted down. They've moved on to other careers. They're sort of more in a consulting format. And so the right, I think, has changed dramatically because of that. But on the left... Your median staffer on a Democratic campaign is not only much, much further to the left than their median voter, but they don't know it anymore because their college campus is has been so unrepresentative where they, for instance, when they meet someone who is not white, that person is almost by definition liberal on their college campus, even though out in the world, that person is far more likely at least to be conservative or at least not nearly as liberal as they are 
And I think that's how you end up with defund the police and a Democratic Party that's losing those white working class voters, because the staffers don't even know what they don't know at that point. They're they're in a bubble that nobody's telling them is a bubble. I think that's true up to a point, except for the fact that like the guy who won the presidency explicitly campaigned against defund the police um, and said that, you know, we need more funding. And his staff was all super old. And so they- Well, they were. Right? They weren't have... all super old. His key advisors were, his inner circle. Yeah, but like that inner circle that had been with him forever. Yeah, no, that's definitely true. I'm just thinking, I'm just, I'm just thinking through the other, I'm just thinking through the other candidates. But look at the Harris team. Look at the Warren team. They were much, much younger. Yeah, the inner circle. Warren-ish. Um, her, some of her advisors are actually very kind of pragmatic. She herself is very progressive. I don't see her as being dragged by her staff. Kamala Harris. A couple of them were in my law school class. Um, <laughs> yeah, but you don't think that that they're dragging her to the left. I think Liz Warren is authentically, uh, you know. <laughs> but culturally um, to the left. Uh, she is economically uh, to the left, but I don't know maybe. that she's hopping in on some of the language stuff, Latinx stuff, without staffers, but maybe. Kamala Harris, it's hard to know because I think she has shown that she will sort of see what she thinks is politically expedient in the moment. And I don't have enough visibility into operation to know the extent to which she's making those strategic calls versus um, her staff. But I do get the sense it's her to a large extent um, making some of these strategic judgments. But yeah, for sure. I mean, I, I think that's that phenomenon is accurate in the sense that certainly the young operatives I deal with are, uh, tend to be uh, quite progressive. But the Biden, again, the Biden young staffers are not actually, and maybe it's self-selection because they're working for Biden, but like a lot of them are actually quite pragmatic, more center-left than progressives. And this is not just the inner circle of Donald and the, you know, the 60 plus year olds. This is like people in their twenties and thirties, but you know, they went to work for Joe Biden. So that tells you something as well. So I think it's a little more nuanced, but I, I generally agree with you. So this is a pretty pet friendly, maybe the most pet friendly podcast about politics that exists. And I noticed that you don't have any pets. No. So why are you a monster? Um, did Betsy tell you to just ask this question? She's trying to get me to get a dog. Listen, I've got, like, do you know how much chaos? Like, I've got enough chaos in my life. I just, at the moment, I'm not foreclosing pets, but, like, there's a lot of chaos. I mean, do you have pets? Yeah, we have two geriatric cats. Oh, uh, okay. You've been to my house so many times. I just haven't seen your cats. <laughs> I mean, like, I don't know where they are. I mean... <laughs> They're sleeping. Did you give them in a kennel or something? I suggested to Betsy having a kennel, and she said that was like the most monstrous thing. What are you, Mitt Romney? Putting the kennel on the top of the car? Animal abuse. I, you know, I didn't think it was animal abuse. You could get, uh, you know, good insulation or whatever. Anyway, she's against that. I assume at some point I'll be, you know, beaten down into getting a dog. Uh, Betsy what kind wants would you get? birds. Uh, that's not happening. There's no universe in which we're having birds in our house. I can't see you with birds. She's not, we're not getting birds, which is not happening. Um, she wants to get like a parrot or something. I don't know. She had ideas about birds. Well, there's just like, I guarantee you we're not getting a bird. Not completely against the idea of a dog, but nothing short term. 
just enough chaos in my life. There's enough. There's two kids under two. It's like... Well, no, one is over two now. Well, she had a birthday yeah, last month. <laughs> so speaking of which, I mentioned that our children are betrothed, but I'm it. there was a time where Esther was more into Nate and she would chase after him and hug him and kiss him and everything. But I think the tables are turning a little and I'm concerned. So Nate... I uh, woke up yesterday morning and I asked him if he had any dreams and he said, yeah. And I said, what did you dream about? And he goes, Nate dreamed about cinnamon rolls and Esther, <laughs> Esther ate cinnamon rolls, no icing. <laughs> oh then, man, that's really And then good. yesterday afternoon, one of his other baby girlfriends called from the girl pod, uh, you know, obviously her mother called and you know, Nate. Nate, I'd never seen him do this, but he grabs the phone and he goes, hi, Carmen. I miss Esther. <laughs> so good. So good. <laughs> he's, he's completely obsessed. It's all he talks about. And then when they see each other, really for the first time, like in this last month, they're now, they're now doing their own thing. It's not us suggesting oh play it's activities. Like you can, it's like, they have their own game, oh, their it's own like language. It's like a Gwyneth Paltrow You see it's like slow motion, like running. To, it's like... <laughs> You know, the the husband's coming back from war, you know, on the train yeah. and she runs up to it. I mean, it's... it's. But she has learned to grab his face. Like she puts mm. her hands on both sides of his cheeks mm. and kisses him passionately. Yeah. Like longer than two-year-olds, I think, <laughs> kiss. But Betsy says that's your fault, that the grabbing the cheeks thing is you. She says that. I mean, I it's possible. <laughs> 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 yeah, I mean, honestly, I'll, I'll admit it's it's kind of disturbing sometimes seeing it, and and I just think it's like it's um they're obviously going to get married, right? It's just like there's no or other one way of them's going to break the other's mm. heart. That I'm worried this is like a great mm. expectations thing, and that I've got Pip, mm. and like this is I mean, not that yeah, Betsy, Esther's very <laughs> alpha. I feel like Esther's like she is. yeah. She's not going to get kicked around. She's like a tough kid. She, yeah, she is very so. Yeah. She's three months younger than Nate. She is much, much rougher with him. Oh, yeah, she's got very strong authoritarian instincts. Yeah. Kind of neo-fascist sort of instinct. And it's like a loving, like she will knock him over, hold him down yeah. to hug him. No, it's like the educational use of power. It's what Dick Cheney used to talk about, right? <laughs> um, so I don't know what, if we have, we, at some point we're going to have to talk about like how we navigate junior high school and stuff. Because I think that's just going to be a disaster. Yeah. Do you have dating rules in mind for Esther? When is she going to be allowed to no, date? No, like, like my my views on this are like prehistoric, so I don't want to like air them on this show. Like, there's like, it's like a seventh century patriarch inside me. <laughs> it's like, you know, even for Nate, it's even like the Scarface approach to uh, you Got know it. your sister dating someone. I assume I'll at some point get over that, but it's. Um, that's where I'm and at. Nate's pretty attached to you, though. I also think there's going to be me? some weirdness, like yeah, like <sighs> that he's going to want to date your daughter, but he's like known you since he was born. Yeah, no. If I he don't know. look, if he wants to date her, he's, we're going to sit down. And it's going to be a very searching conversation. <laughs> <laughs> Son, I know you weren't potty trained for much longer right. than your age that's cohort, right. and I want to know: Do you have the motivation, the mm. ambition, frankly, to take my mm. daughter out? That's right. There are some. Some questions I'll have to ask. Esther's also an excellent eater, though. Very good. She's she eats like me with like. If I uh, I have this problem of everyone in my family. It's like maybe it's genetic. Uh, eat extremely fast, like a vacuum cleaner, and she eats with like 
there's no mucking around. It's like she means business. There's a seriousness and an intensity with which she uh, approaches food. Um, it's almost like the certain knowledge that like this is the last piece of pizza yeah. on earth and I'm going to... You're a Jewish family. Yeah. There's been some studies that write that like the grandchildren of Holocaust survivors have some food insecurity sometimes. Maybe though it's not Holocaust specific. Maybe it's a Judaism thing. You never know when you're going to have to go back out in the desert. And Esther <laughs> sounds like it's very connected to her Judaism that she... Uh, has has real thoughts already formed about her religion. Yeah, I mean, yeah, she's been, we, we were somewhat concerned. We were driving her around and she was saying, Egyptians mean, Egyptians mean. <laughs> and at some point I'll have to explain to her that Egyptians, like current Egyptians, we, we, we don't hate them. Like, that's not a thing. <laughs> like, yes, the Egyptians were mean. And we'll tell you the story, but... um. But so were the British. I mean, not in sure. the Judaism context, but in the sure. American context, we don't hate the British. A lot of anymore. people weren't great to the Jews. Yeah, <laughs> that's definitely true. But there's a lot on. So there was this study uh, of monkeys and children, primates and children, and basically for chimpanzees, if you uh, show them how to get food using a tool, mm -hmm. they can actually mimic that better than children at a younger age, for instance, hmm. uh, than children. But if you, for instance, take the tool, open the box, rub the top of your head, which has nothing to do with anything, and then use the tool to get the food out, as in there's a ritual that's added to the order of events, children will always mimic the ritual, hmm. the useless ritual that clearly has nothing to do with getting the food out of the box, but the chimpanzees won't. And it's just this fascinating look at why humans are different, how we learn different, that it's a much more communal, mimicking form of learning in a lot of ways, but also how religion becomes such a powerful part of kids' lives. And I think it's amazing that Esther, again, she just turned two, and she's really into, I mean, y'all do Shabbat dinner, yeah, celebrate all the high holidays, and like she very much seems to understand it. Well, kids love rituals, and, and you know, she's the one... You know, we, we like to pray. And this is something I never did really growing up at all, ever. I mean, we did Shabbat dinner, but we didn't pray before every meal. But Betsy grew up paying, praying before every meal. And so we pray before every meal. And I actually really like doing it. Um, but when we forget, Esther reminds us. She holds her little hands out and she says, amen, amen. And so we remember, oh, yeah, we have to. And then she this morning, like we'd forgotten. And she said, amen, God, God, amen. <laughs> and so, so we held hands and did the prayer, but like kids, I think kids crave rituals and, um, we are trying to make sure that, um, we satisfy that craving. Um, well, we love joining you for Shabbat yeah. and Nate looks adorable in his little kippah. It lasts, um, you know, about 30 seconds, but hopefully we'll get better. Well, if he wants to join the chosen people, we will pave the path for him. If he wants to end up with Esther, he's going to have some Absolutely. choices to make. Absolutely. Yeah. I assume that's a deal breaker. She won't be. For, yeah. That's right. Yeah. That's right. <laughs> Jonathan Swan, thank you so much for joining The Remnant and my first time hosting The Remnant. Uh, super fun to just talk with a buddy for an hour. Thanks so much for having me, Sarah. Appreciate it.
Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.